Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. It's the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So Jenny, we've uh, gone into our cardiology month now. So we're taking a little bit of a break from electrolytes and acid base. So what did we want to discuss today? Well, we are taking a break from our electrolytes and stuff. We're going into some of the sexier topics. Here, one of our PGY3s, Julia Paris, gave a talk this week on the management of pulseless VTAC and VFib. So I thought we'd tackle that. This is a great topic to discuss. And we covered VTAC back on the blog in October of 2000. So this is good spaced repetition. And I think there's plenty of stuff in free open access medical education on VTAC and ventricular fibrillation. But we're going to hit a little bit of the core points and then give you some tools to manage this. Let's start with a little bit of background. So there are about 350,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests in the United States every year, and about a quarter of these will have an initial rhythm of V-fib or VTAC. These patients, unlike those with asystole or even PEA, are the most likely to survive. Overall, we see about a 7 to 9% survival with good neuro outcomes, but in V-fib, pulseless VTAC, that number can be much higher, even into the 20% range. And because of that increased chance for good survival, we spend a lot of time focused on these resuscitations, and there's quite a bit of research in the area as well. At some point, we all learned ACLS, and we'll drop a copy of their algorithm in the show notes, but I think that we as emergency medicine doctors should be going beyond ACLS to deliver better care. ACLS was really put together for people who don't resuscitate on a frequent basis, so they have something to fall back on. For us, ACLS should simply be a starting point. I couldn't agree more. So in patients with cardiac arrest who show up with either VFib or VTAC, I'm going to be focused on just a couple of major things to start with. First, application of defibrillation when appropriate. Second, high quality compressions, deep and fast, shooting for about 100 compressions a minute. And then third, maintaining a high compression fraction, meaning the percentage of time during the arrest that the patient has compressions ongoing. The less pauses, the higher the fraction. The higher the fraction, the better the perfusion. Those are definitely three of the most important things, but I find that when you take ACLS, it spends a lot of time on medications. The truth is that blind application of medications according to the ACLS algorithm are unlikely to be helpful and may actually harm patients. Epinephrine in the one milligram every three to five minute dosing is the most used medication and the literature that we have basically shows that the use of epinephrine increases Roski but it doesn't increase survival with good neurologic outcomes. And that, of course, is the outcome we are looking for. It's not exactly what we want to see. We don't simply want patients to get return of spontaneous circulation. Now, for a longer review on the topic, check out a post I wrote for emdocs.net a while back, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. So epi doesn't really have much benefit, but what about amiodarone in patients with refractory VFib or VTAC? Well, not too much of a benefit there either. The ALP's trial looked at amiodarone, lidocaine, or placebo in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and found no benefit of either of the active medications in comparison to placebo. A recent meta-analysis and systemic review on the topic by Lena in the International Journal of Cardiology found that amiodarone does increase ROSC, but again, doesn't improve good neurologic outcomes. So, Swami, do you use these meds at all in your patients? So I do use medications in my resuscitations, but not necessarily by the ACLS guidelines. I don't use amiodarone much at all. I think amiodarone is sort of a dead drug when we talk about these things because it's been shown over and over again to not have any real benefit. 
but I do use epinephrine. Typically, I use it in infusion doses in conjunction with an arterial line to ensure good coronary vessel perfusion during compressions. I'm typically shooting for a diastolic blood pressure around 40 millimeters of mercury, though other numbers have been quoted here. And that's a threshold in my mind to ensure that there's good perfusion of coronary vessels, without which I don't think you're going to get a conversion to sinus rhythm. Now, that's a little bit of an advanced way of looking at it, but again, I think this is how we should be thinking about resuscitation and cardiac arrest. I also think it's important to consider using calcium for possible hyperkalemia and sodium bicarbonate for possible toxins, but again, that goes a little bit beyond what we're going to be covering today. All right, so what about beta blockers? There have been some recent publications looking at the use of beta blockers in patients with refractory VFIP, the cases where you've delivered multiple shocks and multiple rounds of meds without conversion to normal sinus rhythm, but the patient clearly still has electrical activity. This is really interesting stuff, and again, the evidence isn't robust, but as we well know in critical care topics, you don't often get the most robust studies. Part of the justification of this therapy is that the patients have received large amounts of epinephrine that can worsen ischemia and make the VF threshold lower, so beta blockade may help. It's reasonable to try this in selected patients, but those patients are going to be pretty uncommon. Now let's get off medications and back to the electricity itself, something that we know can increase good outcomes. Julia had some good tips on maximizing the success of electricity. Yeah, this is one of those things that I think we take for granted, but it's not as simple as we think. In order to have successful defibrillation, 90 to 95% of the cardiac muscle has to be defibrillated. Impedance or resistance to electricity can hamper this. Things like fat, hair, and sweat can alter the resistance and less electricity will reach the heart. Dry off the patient if they're sweaty, and pushing down a bit on those pads can help reduce the resistance. Placement of the pads or the paddles is really vital as well. You want the electricity to pass directly through the heart and not around it. The anterior pad or paddle is usually in the right place, but I often see the lateral pad placed too high, so it's almost above the breast. It's got to be somewhere around the PMI or where the PMI should be, although that is going to differ a little bit in every patient. Julia also mentioned doing dual defibrillation, basically using two sets of pads to deliver the shock. It's not simply about giving twice as much electricity, although that's kind of fun, but also about maximizing the chance that you defibrillate 95% of the myocardium. That's the important thing. Yeah, I've done this twice in patients with refractory ventricular fibrillation, and once it worked, or at least I think it worked, it may have been something else that we did, and once it really didn't have any effect. Regardless, I think in the patient you've shocked a couple of times, you've given multiple drugs to, and they haven't converted, it's a reasonable thing to consider dual defibrillation. Now, what about pre-charging the defibrillator? This is a great example of something small that we can do that can have a huge benefit. So typically what we see happen is that there's a rhythm check. We look up at the monitor, we see VT or VF, and then the paddles need to be charged, which takes a couple of seconds, and then the shock is delivered. The problem with that is that during that charging phase, there's no perfusion pressure since CPR has been paused. Even if you restart CPR while you're waiting for the device to charge, you have this huge fall off, this huge dip in your perfusion pressure, and you're not going to get right back up to that good perfusion pressure immediately. Instead of that, about 30 seconds before the rhythm check, we should charge in anticipation that we see a shockable rhythm during the rhythm check. If we see VT or VF, we deliver the shock. If you don't see those, you can waste the charge while you resume CPR. This simple maneuver acts to decrease hands-off time and increase your compression fraction. 
Now, just make sure your team is aware of your plan to do this beforehand so that no one gets kind of antsy about the charging noise going off while they're still doing their compressions. Sam Golly wrote a great post on this over at Rebel EM, and we'll drop a link in the show notes to that. Yeah, and we're talking all these things about pad placement. We also put together a video for the Core EM site that shows where these pads should be positioned, both for the normal defibrillation process and the anterior lateral, and then also for dual defibrillation. So go on over to the site and check out that video. Now, hopefully with all these maneuvers that you've used, you've gotten return of spontaneous circulation. Once that happens, don't forget to check an EKG looking for a STEMI because that's something that we can fix. Start cooling the patient if they don't have a return of neurologic function and get cards involved for a cath and ongoing care. All right, Jenny, how about some take-home points to wrap this up? Absolutely. So first, in cardiac arrest, the most important interventions are to deliver electricity quickly when it's indicated and to administer good, high-quality compressions with minimal interruptions to maximize your compression fraction. Second, medications like epinephrine and amiodarone have never really been shown to improve good neurological outcomes in the ACLS-recommended doses, so just don't focus on them. Third, consider precharging your defibrillator to minimize pauses in CPR and maximize your chance for ROSC. And then finally, remember that as emergency physicians, we are specialists in the resuscitation of cardiac arrests. ACLS is just a starting point. Push your understanding of taking care of these patients so you can deliver the best care possible. Very well said. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Google Plus and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks and see you all next week. Time.